Oh, more Cheez-Its and Diet Coke. All right, yes. I'm going to work on a, you know how if you have a, like a, a... Thank you. Here we go. Here we go. More, more, more. Thank you. More. Thank you. You guys are awesome. Yes, let's. I'm so. I'm gonna be so fat. I got a track. I'm gonna get saved. Hallelujah. Yeah, that's your, who, <laughs> whose birthday is it? He says. I love it. More. 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 Thank you for shaking that one up. I'm going to open that one. I'm going to open that baby up. All right. What's that? Jesus is the Cheez-It of life. I told you about my story where this guy wanted, wanted to have communion with me with a peanut butter jelly sandwich and a Coke. Remember that? Yeah. Well, what am I going to do here? Yeah, well. Okay. Now I know. Now I know God's plan. Um, I got to move some of these. Hold on a second. I keep on covering up my Bible. I found more. More. Now you know where to go and get a snack, guys. Jesus in my office. Although my kids will probably eat them pretty quick. Um, so, uh, what was I going to say? Heather, you're awesome. Amen to that. Um, so I wanted to share from John 3, but I think the Lord... I've got a sermon here. You want to see it? It's right here. And I got... Thing I want to quote from here, and a thing I want to quote from here. So I'm prepared, but I'm not going to give that sermon. I was reading last night, and I came across a survey. And some of you who read things like this have probably seen the survey, but I wanted to pull this up for you and talk briefly about it because it's relevant to this whole topic of the gospel that we've been talking about and the uh, the importance of sharing the gospel. It's called The State of Theology. Anybody read that one? It was was, uh, sponsored by Lifeway and Ligonier Ministries. Ligonier Sproul stuff, Lifeway's uh, Southern Baptist. So they did a survey um, of American beliefs and evangelical beliefs, which is, you know, Americans one thing. We know there's a lot of confusion out there, right? But evangelical is another thing. An evangelical is someone who claims... We would probably say we're an evangelical, right? Bible-believing, cross-believing, blood-believing kind of Christians, right? So we would fall into that camp. When I was a younger Christian, and I've been saved 42 years, I know, I've been saved longer than some of you have been alive. 
Pretty awesome, huh? So, evangelical, it was understood. Today, today, well, anyway, as you'll see, the term evangelical is expanding. Get what I'm saying? Yes. Getting bigger and bigger. So now people that believe things that 40 years ago or even 30 years ago, 30 years ago we would have not thought were evangelical, they're saying, I'm evangelical. But then they're holding beliefs which, which traditionally would be considered at odds with evangelicalism. Um, now, people don't like to call themselves, a lot of people don't, some, some don't care. Some don't like to refer to themselves as fundamentalists because there's social connotations to that. The theological connotation of a fundamentalist is, the, is that they believe in the fundamentals of the faith. The inspiration of the scripture, uh, the blood atonement of Jesus, a literal resurrection, physical return for judgment, you know, bit, the bit, what we would call the basics. So theologically, I'm a fundamentalist. But if somebody asks me, I say I'm evangelical. Because fundamentalism conjures up ideas of people that are like always about a generation or two behind in everything else. You know what I'm saying? In everything else. So if you're a fundamentalist, back in the day, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, it was associated with a, ba- a social backwardness, if you will, which I think is, is irrelevant to anybody's conservative theology. So they did the study, and I'm just going to, I want to read a little bit to you. Many self-professed evangelicals reject foundational evangelical beliefs. The survey results reveal that the biblical worldview of professing evangelicals is fragmenting, though American evangelicalism arose in the 20th century around strongly held theological convictions. Many of today's self-identified evangelicals no longer hold those beliefs. Here's an example. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, Islam. 46% of self-identified evangelicals agree or somewhat agree with this statement. Now, the thing about surveys is you have to... I'm I'm a fairly intelligent person. When I say fairly, I'm not like super bright. I don't think I'm super dumb. I'm, you know... But I was never good at tests. You know why? Because I'm always thinking they're trying to trick me. And I'm like, mm, no, it could, no, what if they're trying to trick me and I, and I spend an hour on one question? Well, survey questions can be that way, intentionally or not, depending on how you read them. So when you we read this, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. When I read that, I'm thinking people are responding to the notion that in any of these, quote, religions, one has access to God and thus can be saved. Okay, that's what I'm thinking. But that's not what the question is, so I don't know. Is, is that what people are thinking? Or are they thinking that if somebody in those religions just throws up some kind of prayer, God hears it? Well, God hears everything, right? So, um, so these questions can be a little tricky. We'll lose that. Uh, so... But it is a little bit disconcerting that 46% seem to imply, uh, it seems to imply that they believe that, that regardless of one's religion, that there's kind of this open door policy with God, whether you're uh, Muslim, Jewish, Christian, and, and, they, and then they probably could have included, I don't know, Hinduism or, or whatever. So what does the scripture say? Well, let's just look at a couple of scriptures. We're going to come back to this. In a minute. Um, look at John 1. I'm just going to look at a couple of scriptures. 
Now, by the way, you know, you, you guys, some of you are thinking, you know, this is, why are we talking about this? Because I know the gospel and I believe the gospel. Well, let me tell you why. Two, there's two reasons. No, I'll just give you one reason. Maybe two. Okay. One reason is this. If this survey is really accurate, if it's giving a picture of evangelicalism in America, that means that anywhere between 35 and 65% of the people you know that say they're Christians are not Christians. Let me say that again. If these results are accurate, between 35 and 65% of the people who claim to be Christians, that's the key here, are not Christians. That's huge. Now, that doesn't even include young people who I think often think they're saved when they're not and whose parents think they're saved when they're not. These are adults. So this means when you go to work and you've got... Joe across the aisle who goes to the church down the street, you think he's saved, he doesn't need the gospel. And then there's, there's Bob and Harry at basketball, or, or Mary and Sue at the gym, and they all go to church somewhere, so you think they're saved. You have your neighbors, and they go to this, their church, and the different neighbor goes to their church, and you think they're saved. If this is true, there's a good chance that half of these people are not saved. Well, that certainly has an impact on our mission, does it not? Because I think many evangelicals, just because we're supposed to be nice, I mean, isn't that what Christians are? They're nice. Would never think of inviting their friend to their church because, well, they have a church, so they're fine. But unfortunately, people are, are, are sitting in churches all around our country who are not saved, and there's nothing coming from the pulpit which would prompt them to be saved. Because the gospel, in its simplicity and purity, is not being preached. Are you hearing me? I mean, it's really not being preached. I read another survey, I'll come back to this, I know I'm rambling, but I don't care. About uh, past, it was a thing about what churches look for in a pastor. And it was shocking to me how low on the list was someone who could teach the word. I think it, was, it wasn't first, it wasn't second, and it wasn't even third. It was below that. They wanted an administrator, they want a shepherd, they want a visitor, they want a comforter, but they don't want the word. I shouldn't say they don't want the word. They don't know what they want, and they don't know what they need. Okay? So, um, in light of that, and then you, you couple that with this, what you see is that, is that there's this ongoing problem in the church of the unregenerate in the church. If that's true, if half the people that think the Christians aren't Christians, guess what? I'm not surprised that the church isn't growing because unsaved people don't evangelize. Not to mention the, the real Christians that don't do it for their own reasons, right? So in America, what you see is just people move around church to church. Every few years, people just move around. That's what happens. And then you get, you, get the new, you get the new hot church in town, and everybody goes to that one, and it becomes a big church and a mega church. But the kingdom never grows because souls aren't getting saved. Well, that's not the kind of church growth we want. Amen? We want people to come to Jesus Christ in saving faith. But in order to do that, 
uh, we have to understand the gospel. We need to be able to present the gospel. And they need to understand the gospel. The real gospel. Not, not the cultural gospel. John 1. Verse 9, that was the true light. He's referring to the word, which is Jesus, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born. Remember two weeks ago in John 3, we talked about being born again. We'll get back to John 3 uh, another date. We're born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, born, but born of God. Jesus, John 3, talks about being born again. He says you must be born again. Now look at, uh, look at um, John 4. Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. Um, Verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you do not know. (laughs) You worship what you don't know. Uh, In other words, Jesus, in his blunt way, says, You don't know what you're doing. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is a spirit, or God is a spirit, excuse me, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Notice again the imperative. Just like Jesus said, you must be born again. He says that we must worship in spirit and truth. Well, the problem with, with this question was saying that uh, God's accepting worship from all these different religions is the issue of truth. Now, if spirit means the Holy Spirit, well, that's another problem. But even if spirit meant inwardly, you must worship inwardly, that's not enough. It's not enough to be sincere because we can be sincerely wrong, Right? And you'll hear that. I'll hear Christians say, well, you know, they really believe what they believe. Okay. Well, you know, Hitler believed he was going to rule the world. He was sincere. So we can be sincerely wrong. So Jesus says we have to worship in spirit. It has to be genuine in that inward sense, but it's got to be genuine objectively too. It has to conform to truth. Jesus says in, in John 5, look at this, verse 21. This is after he basically claimed equality with the Father, which, of course, you don't see in Judaism and you don't see in Islam and you don't see in Hinduism, right? Verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so uh, the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to his Son, so that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, can you honor someone? I mean, if you say you're worshiping this God, according to this scripture, Jesus says you're actually dishonoring this God if you don't acknowledge that his Son is equal with him. Right? Look at First John. This is the first epistle of John. 
for the back of your Bible. Chapter 5. Verse 9. If we receive the witness of men... By the way, I'm drinking Diet Coke right now. I had to, to celebrate. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed the testimony which God has given of his Son. So how can we, how can someone, how can we say, oh, we're all worship, we're all, God's accepting this worship when the person worshiping is calling God a liar? See what I'm saying? So there's all kinds of problems with with this notion, and we could look at many, many, many more scriptures regarding this. Um, but clearly, scripture says that there's only one way to God. There's only one true God, and that true God is three persons. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, his Son came to die for our sins. He rose from the dead in the power of the Spirit. He's ascended to the Father. He sits at the right hand of the Father in glory right now, and he bestows the Spirit on all all those who believe in him. And he gives them the new birth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If this were true, then Heather's little friend, they they shouldn't be sharing with that Muslim girl because why? Jake... God accepts Muslim worship, right? So why? Here's a good one. By the good deeds that I do, I partly contribute to earning my place in heaven. 30, 36% of self-identified evangelicals agree or somewhat agree with this statement. Now, let's analyze the statement a little bit more. By the good deeds that I do, I partly contribute to earning my place in heaven. Now, the, the problem I have with the question is I think it's ambiguous. Yes. Because if I was asking the question, I would say, by the good deeds that I do, I contribute to entering yes. heaven. Yes. Now, place in heaven, someone could be thinking, oh, well, yeah, depending on how I live, that will affect my rewards in, in heaven. So, see the ambiguity? But I think some people are thinking this means I, by what I do, I get into heaven. Can anybody tell me a Bible verse that contradicts that? Nobody knows a Bible verse? Say it loud. I keep on hearing Ephesians. Go to Ephesians 2. Go to Ephesians 2. Y'all there? Say y'all. Okay. Ephesians 2. Where to begin? It's all so good. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, if it just stopped there, maybe there'd be a little confusion. Oh, what's grace? How do we get it? What's faith? Blah, blah, blah. But, but he, he doesn't stop there. And that not of yourselves... It is the gift of God. Now, he could have stopped there. But Paul, you know Paul, right? He goes on and on. By the way, I read, I read this morning that the longest sentence in, 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 uh, in a book is 832 words. 
written by Alexander Dumas. Forget if it was. He wrote. Uh, help me out. Never mind. You guys are not helpful. Right. Okay, verse nine. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. I mean, how many different ways in in one simple sentence can he say the same thing? You get what I'm saying? It's by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is a gift. It's not of works. So our good deeds do not contribute in any way whatsoever to entering heaven. Now the question of rewards is a different discussion. But getting in, entering, being accepted by God at the final judgment, not perishing, if you will, not going to hell, but going to heaven, is not based upon our works in any regard. Even our religious works, whether it's baptism or communion. Go to Titus. We'll read one more. These are verses you guys need to have memorized. Memorized, memorized, memorized. That you can use on a regular basis as you share the gospel with other people. This, this, this is the, the milk that, that I was weaned on as a baby Christian. I memorized all of these scriptures. Because I was taught to be prepared at all times to share the gospel. Titus chapter 3. says in verse 3, For we ourselves were also once foolish, we, meaning we who are now Christians, we who are now saved, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Let's hear some amens it's not just that he was merciful and saved us, because that could be ambiguous too. Well, he's merciful, but you got to do this to get the mercy. No. Very, very emphatic. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. This is, he's talking about the new birth here again whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, having been justified by his grace. Justified by what? Grace. Not by works. Not by works, not of ourselves, according to his kindness, his love, and his mercy, which he poured out on us through his Holy Spirit and through justification. Our good deeds do not contribute in any way to getting us into heaven. There's a lot of bad ones in here. This is another one along the line. Can you see it up there? An individual must contribute his or her own effort for personal salvation. In 2014, only 40% agreed. Now, only 40%? Only? That's a, that's a high number. But in 2016, 50% agreed. Now, people have asked me this question a long time. Now, you, you may have a Roman Catholic background, and you may, I don't know, you may be Roman Catholic right now, but so this is not a Catholic bashing thing. But people will often ask me, Protestants, do you think there are saved Catholics? And I answer this way, yes, because there are saved Protestants. <laughs> your denomination doesn't save you, and your denomination doesn't even damn you. 
Because when you go stand before the Lord, it's not like, hey, we're all, you know, I hate to say this, guys, but when we stand before the Lord, we're not all going to be there together. And even if you're there watching, it's not like you're going to step in and say, hey, man, well, he's a good preacher, so give him, give him a break. It doesn't work that way. We each give an account of ourselves to God, right? Individually. So, um, 50% thought that we contribute in some way to our, to our salvation. Well, we just read Ephesians 2, Titus 3. We can look at many other scriptures. In the New Testament, you listening? It says 300 times in one way or another that we are saved through believing or through faith. It's either stated or implied. I'm aware there's James 2, which, oh, gee, well, he seems like he's... But there's a simple principle of Bible interpretation here. You, You interpret the unclear passages by the clear passages. And you have 300 verses over here, and you have one or two over here, which one is, are you going to believe? Which, which explains which? You get what I'm saying? So the, the emphatic message of, of the, the New Testament is that we are saved by grace through faith. And, it, and, and repeatedly we are told that by faith means not by works. Not by works. Look at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians was the first book in the Bible I ever studied. I mean studied with commentaries and memorized portions of it. Galatians 2, verse 15. Paul is is retelling a conversation that he had with Peter. And the conversation says, We who are Jews, so Paul and Peter are Jews, right? They're talking. Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law. Is, is that unclear? No, I'm serious. I'm not being, I'm not being facetious. I mean, look, it's, a weird thing goes on when people start talking about God. It's like all of a sudden words become fuzzy. All of a sudden things don't mean what they mean. Well, that's your interpretation. Well, okay. I'm trying to, I'm trying to see a different one, but it's pretty hard. If words mean what they mean. We're not justified by the works of the law. Well, then how are we justified? By faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith. He said three times, and right there, three times, it's by faith right there. We're not even done with the verse. Not by works of the law. Again, not justified by works. Not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Three times he says it is by faith. Three times he says it is not by works. Is there a problem? Are you confused? 50% of evangelicals are confused. I don't know what's coming out of the pulpit. But it can't be the gospel of the Bible. Could we say by grace through faith, not of works? I can do it. Remember Ben Franklin? God helps those who help themselves. By good deeds that I do, I partly contribute to my place in heaven. 52 agree. 
A person obtains peace with God by first taking the initiative to seek God, and then God responds in grace. 83% of self-identified evangelicals agree or somewhat agree with this. Holy Lord, we are in trouble. What does Ephesians 2 say? We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Look at, look at Romans 3. If this doesn't seal it, I don't know what to tell you. In Romans, the structure of Romans, the first two chapters of Romans, Paul is pointing out that all men are sinners. All men are fallen. And he, he breaks it down into groups. He talks about the pagan world, the Greeks and the Romans. Then he talks about the Jews who have the law. The, the, the pagans, he this lists of this pagan idolatry and all these gross sins and all this stuff. They're clearly, yeah, they're not saved. But then he confronts the Jews, says, you got the law, but you're not obeying the law. So he, then they, now they stand condemned. So basically everybody's messed up. Then in verse 9, he says, what then? 3, 9, you there? What then? Are we better than they? Meaning, are we Jews? Because he addresses the Jews after he addresses the Gentiles. Are we Jews better than they? No, not at all. For we've previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they're all under sin. There is none righteous. No, not one. No imam, no pope, no priest, no bishop. No head of any church, no pastor. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. Listen, there is none who seeks after God. Now you can, you, you can believe, like these 83%, that people are seeking God. That's not what the Word says. But you might, well, wait a minute. I, I was seeking God and I got saved. Of course. Because God was drawing you. Yes. By nature is the key. By nature, we do not seek God. Now, by nature, man is religious. That's the weird, maybe that's what's confusing about this. Is by nature, man is religious. By nature, man worships. By, by nature, man builds churches and altars and, 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 and makes offerings. By nature, he does these things. And so the assumption is because man, by nature, worships, then, then clearly man must be seeking the true God. But that's not what Scripture says. The, that form of worship is actually a, a form of idolatry which excuses them from worshiping the true God. It's a substitute for the true God because they don't want to worship the true God. You're saying, well, that sounds harsh. I don't have to tell you. It's in the Bible. Romans 1. Look. 119. Oh, 118. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Look, what do they do? They suppress the truth and unright- they, they, they hold down the truth. Could be translated literally. They, they're holding it down. You ever go fishing? Any of you guys ever go fishing? Maybe there's a cork on your line. A cork, you know, stays on the, on the surface. If you're going to keep a cork under, under the water, you have to exert pressure to hold it down. That's the picture here. Men are exerting pressure to hold down the truth, to suppress it. Because what may be known of God, why do they need to hold it down and, and, and press it down? Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And notice what they did. They worshipped. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. They erected objects of worship. That's how they suppressed the truth. When we think of people worshiping, even a Muslim or a Hindu, or well, clearly they must be sincere. They must be seeking the true God. But that's not what Scripture tells us. Men create substitutes. And religion can be a substitute for God. It's a scary thought. Scary thought. We respond to God because God first calls us. God draws us. God enlightens us. God's work, God's grace always precedes man's response. Always. So yes, I've met many people that are clearly, that that are seeking God. But all that tells me is that Jesus was right when he said that he was going to send the Spirit. Let's read it. I want to read it. Because I want you to see it in your Bible. Go to John go to John 14. Real quick, and then we're going to wrap it up because I know I'm going long. Go to uh, John 16. I said 14, but go to 16. So Jesus is departing. His disciples are worried. He tells them, don't worry. Um, this is a good thing that I go away. And then he says in John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. It's, it's good for you that I leave physically. Well, why? Because the Holy Spirit's going to come and reside in each of them individually, as well as among them as the church. For a, It's your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, meaning the Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of righteousness and of judgment and of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and see, and you see me no more. And of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus says, it's good for you that I leave because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Not only for their own salvation was it good for them, it was good for them because he had commissioned them, he's given them a task to take the gospel into the entire world, and that's a task the church cannot do apart from the Holy Spirit. We cannot save anybody, we cannot raise the dead in our own power, we cannot cause people's eyes to be opened, we can only share the gospel. The Holy Spirit must convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He must draw the sinner to Christ. He must show them the beauty of the cross, the glory of the Savior, the necessity of an atonement. This must be the Spirit's work. But he delights to do this work. He loves to glorify the Son in showing people his beauty. It's we who need to open our mouths and be used as instruments of the Spirit as he draws men and women to himself. Well, I could uh, talk a lot about this a lot more. Um, and maybe in the future day I will. Some of these questions don't have to do with the gospel. The one about abortion being a sin is disturbing. Only 48% thought abortion was a sin. 
Yeah, frightening. It shows, I mean, it just shows how we're not being, we meaning the evangelical church, we're not being shaped and molded by the word of God. We're being shaped and molded by the culture. The Bible is the word of God, and it tells us that we are fallen in our sin, and we are dead in our trespasses, that even though in spite of our sin, God loves us and has sent his son to die for us. And what we cannot save ourselves in any way, the Bible calls upon us to believe. Jesus said, for God so loved the world. Are you listening? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Faith is not a work. When you look in Scripture, what you see is that faith is always opposed to works. We saw it right there in Galatians 2, three times in one sentence. Faith, not works. Faith, not law. Faith, not works. Faith is not a work. Faith is the Spirit's work in you. It's you responding to His work. It's you responding to the truth that He is revealing to you. But you must exercise faith. You might say, well, that's a paradox. I I can't help you on that. You don't have to understand that. What you need to understand is that Christ died on the cross for your sins. If you know that you have sinned, if you know that you need a Savior, Jesus Christ is the one who can and will save you if you call upon him. Because the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. (coughs) Call upon the name of Jesus. Ask Jesus to save you, and he will. Let's stand together, bow our heads. Dear Father, you have been merciful to many of us here, and that you have opened our eyes and you've drawn us. You've enabled us to believe. You have raised us from the dead. You have saved us. You've forgiven our sins. You've given us your Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts. You've given us the new birth. You've transformed us. Lord, I pray for those here that have not put their faith in Christ. They've not been born again. And I ask, Lord, that even this very day, this this very moment, they may call upon the name of Jesus. Lord, as we sang earlier, nothing but the blood of Jesus. No other name I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, for those that you are drawing right now, that you are wooing, that they might relent and submit to your wooing, to your call, to your pleading, if you will, by your Holy Spirit to rely on the Savior. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that today is the day, is the day of salvation, today. There's no reason to wait. So whether you are 4, 14, 24, 64, 84, we all need the same gospel. Call upon Jesus now. Yes, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I know this. But you're a savior. Lord Jesus, save me from my sins. Call on his name, and his name means God saves. 
He will save you. Lord, we thank you um, that you've given your church a glorious message. We again pray for this young Muslim girl that's you're drawing to yourself, Lord. May she come to truly submit to your lordship and be born again. Then maybe her family would be born again. And we would see revival in, the, in that Muslim community. We pray, Lord, for your church. We pray for this church. We pray that we would be revived regarding our, our mission and our calling and the glory of the gospel, the glory of the message that we have of, of your great love that we are saved by grace through faith and not of our works. May we all share this message joyfully and powerfully through your Holy Spirit. And we pray in your name. Amen. By the way, sign up for the Foundation Conference. It's going to be really, 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 really good.